My name is Amy Sturmer. I am a pharmacist and co-owner with my husband of Medicine Man Bonners Ferry Pharmacy in Bonners Ferry, Idaho. We're an independent retail pharmacy. And we purchased the Rapid Pack RX in July of last year, and it has been a great time saver for us. We were able to cut pharmacist time and tech time in half, even more so in some cases. Um, We've really enjoyed having it. A lot of our patients are telling all their friends and family about the Rapid Pack program, our pouching service. And so we're getting a lot of word of mouth from it. And in a lot of cases, these patients are new patients to us. They're transferring in, which has been a great source of new patients and income to our pharmacy. We're also able to add supplements to their pack um, to help us get the margin on those instead of sending them to other businesses. So that helps us to keep the patient healthy and still get the profits from those supplements. And a lot of the times the patients that are started on our pouching service end up getting a lot of medications discontinued due to their adherence. It's been really nice to see them get healthier and happier and just everything getting easier. Our previous solution wasn't working for us. It took a lot of extra time to uh, both fill the cassettes and verify them. So this has been a huge time saver and we're able to get it done in, in half the time. We're able to get a visual verification which has been really helpful so that if I need to look back on previous pouching history that I can verify everything was done correctly and help the patient through all of that. And we just have a lot of happy patients with it. If you're a pharmacy owner and are interested in increasing profits while helping your patients stay compliant on their medications, reach out to the RxSafe team. Visit rxsafe.com. That's rxsafe.com. You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello, and welcome to Let's Pharmanize, a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm Cal Vandergrift. I'm Shane Gerritsen. I'm Mickey Ferguson. And I'm Ivan Stewart, returning again to babble inanely about a subject of my choosing. And that subject is anesthesia, I believe. That, that is correct. Um, more specifically, a little primer on the history of anesthesia, but specifically focusing more on chloroform and diethyl ether. All that and more on Let's Pharmanize. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. The views and opinions expressed within are those of the authors and speakers themselves and do not necessarily represent any affiliated institution or third party. I'm going to start off with the use of imagination, and through the power of imagination, I'm going to demonstrate to you the inventive process of necessity through which anesthesia was developed. So everybody get ready to imagine, um, and even the folks at home. And what you're going to want to do is close your eyes, and you're now you're, you're in a loincloth. You're surrounded <laughs> by dinosaurs. <laughs> in your cave and you you run through a, a briar bush like you get you get really cut up on your right arm fast forward two weeks later you're sitting in your cave and your arm is really infected like really infected in the forearm. i mean you know it hurts pretty bad and you're thinking 
Man, Onga Bonga, this is pretty bad. <laughs> so, <laughs> what you're gonna wanna do is go see the rock shaman. <laughs> go see the rock shaman. He says, wow, this is really bad. You know, I'm gonna have to cut this off. And he's standing there with his rock and dinosaur jaw saw uh, on the, the holster of his loincloth. And you look at him and you go, is that, is that gonna hurt? And he looks at you and he goes, yeah, that's gonna hurt. And you realize there's nothing you can do about it. You can either die or you can have your arm sawed off with a hacksaw made of dinosaur teeth and probably feces. Because this is, I'm thinking like 4,000 BC here. I'm just surprised we got through that bit without a, without a bone saw Spider-Man joke. Just keep, just keep going. Okay, oh, we'll Jesus. keep going. But yeah, so that, I mean, I think that the mother of most inventions, especially of humankind, is necessity. Because humankind is, by all intents, very adaptable, and we also typically like to avoid pain. So I, I imagine that the, the real search for anesthesia, whether it be documented or undocumented, reaches back many thousands of years. Because people have always noticed that stuff hurts pretty bad, and they've always wanted stuff to not hurt so bad. So people have been looking for it. Now, the first documented anesthesia, or I guess this is technically analgesia, but we're just gonna lump it in because it's still pain relief, was the opium poppy, of course. This is the Sumerians, I'm talking our Sumerians, like 2000 BC or something, I believe, where we found a clay tablet that detailed the use of a plant that was called Han-gil, and it was, or maybe Han-gol. I didn't actually write that down, but it's like Han, and it's either gil or gol, I'm pretty sure. But that's not the point. And that would translate roughly to plant of joy. And they talk about like the tears of this plant and they describe something that's very similar to an opium poppy. So they were probably among the first people to figure out like, hey, this, this makes things not hurt so bad. So I, I would describe that as probably the documented birth of, of real substantial pain relief. But next, the first really anesthetic mixture that is documented was a Chinese surgeon named Hua Tua. And he was mainly known for acupuncture. He, he came from a like, kind of a poor family and he, he gradually rose to become a doctor in China. And then we get to the, the Three Kingdoms period, you know, where China was split into three main kingdoms, Wei, Wu, and Shu. And he was summoned by the Lord of the Wei Kingdom, Cao Cao, to his palace. And at that point, this is what led to his eventual death. Cao Cao wanted him to cure his migraines, and he did so through acupuncture, and then Cao Cao wouldn't let him leave because he had another migraine. And Hua Tua told him, I can't do this with acupuncture, I'm gonna need to cut your skull open and look for whatever this is. So in an extraordinary gesture of gratefulness, Cao Cao decided that he was really trying to assassinate him and ordered him executed, before which he burned all of his papers relating to medical practice which is why I preface this with that rather than going right into the anesthetic mixture because we're not 100% sure what was in it. But it was called mafezan powder, which the translation of that exactly is sort of debated from what I understand. But it was believed to have been dissolved in wine based on references in a book about the Three Kingdoms contemporarily. It was wine that had in it dissolved some herbal components, which are speculated to be deuterostromonium, a powerful anticholinergic. Yeah, we've talked the, about this. Yes, before. we have with the the disturbed earth. That and is, the is that there. the same plant? Yes, it is the same plant. Oh my of gosh. course it yes. is. We're back to deuterostromonium okay. or any of those plants in that family that are extremely anticholinergic to cause sort of neuromuscular blockade and generally just kind of dumb you down a little bit. Probably opium, angelica, and a number of other herbs. It was dissolved in the wine, and you would drink it before surgery. 
there are sort of rumors that he may have even performed the removal of gangrenous intestines under this anesthetic successfully. I highly Gosh. doubt the person lived, but he was at least able to remove them with the person in a stupor. So that was the first real documented anesthetic, not just analgesic. But yeah, so Cao Cao murdered him. Um, <laughs> It's also important to note that in his acupuncture, or it's really not important to note, it's just kind of funny, he invented to balance the cheese and to keep people sort of together and balanced a series of exercises that were called Wing Chi Shi, or the five animal frolics, which were essentially just exercises where you would mimic like a bear or a goose <laughs> or a duck because he thought that that would balance your chi. So he's kind of the father of anesthesia. Of course. Yeah. Not <laughs> recommends bear movements. Of yeah. course. Why wouldn't he? Be? I, I, I mean, have a quick question about that. Yes. Is that at all related to Tai Chi? I am not really sure. I'll be honest with you. I, I don't know. Does it? Because I don't really know a lot about Tai Chi. Does it sound? Really? Um, I mean, there's some forms of Tai Chi where it's just like really simple, like movements. I mean, you can make it as intense as you want. Uh, there are people that are up in their 90s that do Tai Chi, and there are some people that are, you know, kids that do it. So. I was just wondering, because sometimes, like, things get adopted, things yeah. get changed over time. So I didn't know if you knew anything about that. I mean, it maybe could be, like I said, some of the up. issue with him is we just don't have most of the records. Like, we have some mentions, but we don't actually have any of his records. So this could all just be lies, but that's what I've been able to garner. So now we're going to fast forward several thousand years, um, because those aren't important. <laughs> That brings us to the point at which inhalational anesthesia started to become not only practical, but also popular. The first inhalational anesthetic that we're going to discuss is diethyl ether. I'm assuming, you know, we, we've all organic chemistry lab worked with some ether before, right? Oh, how would, yeah. How would you describe the smell? Pungent. Pungent? Agreed. Agreed? A, a little bit alcoholic, but kind of sweet. Yeah, I always described it as kind of, it was like somebody dissolved brown sugar in like alcohol and then dumped like a bunch of Sharpies in there and let the Sharpie smell permeate okay, the, so the mixture. I, I think I think Shane and I are in the same boat here. We're like, uh, we haven't worked in a lab ever, I don't think. So. I mean, like, I, I don't know, Cam, but I don't remember. I don't remember diethyl ether very much. I don't think they let us use that. I don't think we were up to that. We standard. used a lot of weird stuff. In, in lab, I kind of like, you know, coasted my way through OCHEM lab just trying Understandable. to Understandable. Yeah. But just kind of relying on my lab partners for the most part. But no, I don't remember any any overwhelming smells except for when we made um, honeybee pheromones. And that was the really? only like smell that I remember from OCHEM. That's Our really OCHEM cool. education was very different. I only ever remember the formaldehyde coming from the oh, anatomy labs. Offensive. Ugh. Formaldehyde, I, I attended a cadaver dissection one time and I almost vomited. Like I had to leave the room to recover. So the, the first inhalational anesthetic to really make headway was diethyl ether, also known as just ethyl ether. It's also a product that is in starting fluids, like automotive starting fluids, and it sees wide use as an organic solvent in addition to an old-timey anesthetic. From what I have read, there are a few developing countries that still use it for surgical anesthesia because it is really, really supremely cheap and relatively safe, contrary to what that would make you think based on the fact that it's in starting fluid. But it, it's pretty safe, honestly. So the history of ether as an anesthetic 
begins, at least in proper documentation, with a fella that was just referred to as, he's Dr. Morton. I did not write down his first name, but he is Dr. Morton. I'm sure if you looked that up, you would find it. And he demonstrated the first use of diethyl ether in surgery at Massachusetts General Hospital, Harvard's teaching hospital, in a building that is now known as the Ether Dome. He demonstrated this, and he was very much lauded for proving the usefulness of ether in surgery. But there was some contention about this because there are records that show that... That was in 1846, first of all. But there are records that show that a dentist named Crawford Long actually may have done this in 1842 on a tooth extraction in front of officials. But he just didn't publicize it as much. He said that he didn't want to publicize it for fear that maybe something else was causing the anesthesia. He wanted more research, if I recall correctly. But it is generally accepted that he was the actual discoverer of the of the proper usefulness of ether in painful procedures in 1842. And he, he also did some other stuff. Like he, he, in addition to being a dentist primarily, he performed other medical functions, if I remember. He, the surgery in which he tested ether... I want to say it was actually a neck tumor removal. I might have said dental extraction, but I think I was thinking the wrong way. And he later wanted to do more research on the subject. Like I said, he wanted to do more discovery with ethyl ether to make sure that that was actually what was causing the anesthesia. So it was recorded. I forget exactly which source I got this from. One of his experiments was there was a child that needed fingers amputated for some reason. So he drugged them with ether for one finger amputation and did not drug them for the other amputation. It was able to reach the resounding conclusion that that really hurts without ether. So he was probably right to assume that it was an effective anesthetic. It's a safe bet. Yeah. <laughs> Everything for science. You know. What was the point of the finger amputation? I'm like, well, he, he amputated. I forget why the fingers needed to be amputated. It could have been type 1 diabetes back in that day. Maybe. I mean, it could, I don't think it said exactly why. It may could have. have what, like genital like neuropathy and then they were just going to cut the fingers off? Well, neuropathy and typically you get diabetic foot infections first. But if you're a kid in the, could eight, be. In the 1800s. You're probably digging around in dirt with if your you hands. Got, if you've got type 1 diabetes, you're going to die of diabetic ketoacidosis before you die of a foot infection. Yeah. You could get unlucky. Didn't you tell me that um, one of the guys that we initially tested insulin on reached, like, early adolescence? 27, yeah. Yeah, before he got This is the insulin. 1800s. Yeah, they didn't have insulin then either. Wait, no. He lived to 13 without insulin, then to 27 with insulin. Yeah, so what if this kid was like 8, he had a few more years to go. But still, you're going to get ketoacidosis before you have the microvascular complications. Can we talk about the fact that it's probably not even insulin-related? It's probably just like he either like smashed his hand or like had a congenital deformity? Probably had warts. Yeah, had warts. Or just, you know, it was like a deterrent to stop picking your nose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if I get a wart, I just immediately chop off whatever the wart <laughs> thing, Yeah. I've been thinking about getting rid of my nose. Actually, like you can still smell that nice nose. You just don't Voldemort look. I, yeah. I can dig it. That's what I'm. That's what I'm going for. <laughs> I'm trying. I'm doing. I'm taking Harry Potter cosplay to the next level. Wow, <laughs> that's what this is really about. Anyway, oh man, where was I? The finger amputation. Yeah, so he tested that and he was able to arrive to his personal satisfaction that ether was in fact an effective anesthetic. So there was some controversy about this for a while about who actually first demonstrated ether, but Morton effectively got the credit at least for that time and he got a little monument. It was called like the the ether monument or something to that effect. They're something, not really creative with their names. Yeah, some, like yeah the, something the pretty dome, uncreative. The ether monument. But Morton, the guy that was given the credit, 
I appeared to be kind of uh, a glory hog because in addition to having a mild controversy with Crawford, he also had a controversy with his chemist who claimed to have really been the person to have postulated in the therapeutic efficacy of ether. And I, as a result of this sort of egomaniacal conception that he was the only person to have discovered this, Morton, th there was a French foundation that attempted to give him a prize of 5,000 francs for his discovery, but it was to be split between him and it was either Crawford or his chemist, and he refused it entirely because he said that all of it should be his money. Dang. So I don't know why, like that. That doesn't really make any sense. But you know that that's his prerogative if he wants to do that. Five thousand francs in the 1840s sounds like a pretty nice payout. I Living know. so large. I don't know if I would have refused that. I, I definitely. I mean, he would have gotten twenty five hundred, but still. Oh, like, I mean, still. Yeah, I mean, that's <laughs> basically free for some money for something you've already done. So I mean, yeah, I'm totally I'm into that. Pays for my free money that I already did. Yeah, you know that that'd be pretty tight. But before this, uh, this is just the surgical demonstration. Before this, ether had been known as an intoxicant. It had just never been used as a as a surgical aid. Like uh, as soon as the 1830s, there were things known as ether frolics, where sort of proponents of ether and other inhalational mind altering substances would just sort of prowl the streets and set up on a soapbox and be like, hey, who wants to come over here and get really high? So they would hang out there and people would inhale these substances to demonstrate sort of their mind altering properties and they would just sort of have a good old time. Yes. The dentist who uh, discovered the uses of ether, I read somewhere, I'm not sure if this is the same guy, but he saw one of those, the ether frolics, and the ether frolic was a clown, right? I think I kind of remember seeing that. I might not have noted it because I didn't go, but I think, or was that Simpson? I read somewhere anecdotally that one of the early discoverers of ether, one of the early users of ether, who was a dentist, discovered it when he saw someone, a clown, on the side of the road street doing a performance while he was on ether, and the clown fell down and didn't hurt himself, even though he was, like, bleeding from the leg. I read somewhere that—I I forget which thing. I think I remember reading that— one of these guys went to an ether frolic and they noticed that like they fell over due to intoxication yeah. and it didn't hurt. Like, exactly. I think it might have been them personally or maybe it was a because there could have been a clown there. Yeah. I mean, I guess all of this is anecdotal, so it could have been anything. Yeah. Really, but they, I definitely do recall reading that they were inspired by the ether frolics. I just remember the dentist from American Horror Story that was huffing on diethyl ether. We've mentioned this before in the yeah. podcast, but yeah, buddy, is this from the first? Yeah, first okay, season. The first, yeah, the first season, Murder House was good because he turned into the illegal abortionist. Yeah, that guy. First season was was pretty good. Yeah. Second season was amazing. The third season made me want to scoop my Thank eyeballs you. out. Like, I which just, one was the third season? That was Coven. 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 Coven was so bad. Freak Show bad. was okay. Freak Show was better. Hotel yeah. was... Yeah. You know, like, and then it just... Roanoke and all them. Down yeah. There. Roanoke was awful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, was, it was just like, oh, we're going to take an episode of Ghost Hunters and we're going to add more F-bombs and also Guts. Wasn't and Kathy that's Bates in, in Roanoke? Yeah, she was in yeah. Roanoke. Yeah, that she was, was the butcher. Good. She was yeah, the, but right. the butcher, because I can't do a Scottish that's accent. Good. That didn't sound Scottish at all. That was all, really good. No. Oh, was it? It was perfect. Oh, okay. Well, 
called? I thought Kathy Bates was in this room for a second. <laughs> well, she <laughs> might have been hiding the ghost. somewhere. Yeah. The ghost yeah. of Kathy Bates. I kind of liked Coven, though. I didn't. You I are liked, I enjoyed it. The problem with Coven, they started off strong, but once they started bringing in the resurrection stuff, there was mm-hmm. no longer any reason to care about right. anybody. And I love I love Thaisa Farmiga as much as you know anyone else because her in Murder House was really good. I forget who that who that was. Violet, the young one, Violet, the kid, the Murder House. Oh yeah, so the the, the actual like main it. girl that yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I was, I was more a fan of that, that really catty girl in the witch house. She was, she was. Oh, cool. see, no, she was too played. She had been in too many other things. I mean, maybe. I mean, so. it's an anthology. They're all like, I mean, in every episode. No, 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 no. The, the, yeah, I know who you're talking about. That one that kept showing up on the crappy seasons. Wait, wasn't Kathy well, Bates in Coven? She, she's too? the long blonde no. hair. Okay. Stevie Nicks was though, because yeah, Stevie about Nicks witches, was, and that makes sense. Yeah, Stevie Stevie Nicks kind of made sense. I mean, I love me some Stevie Nicks. I do too. Uh, Kathy Bates know. was the one who got decapitated, and her head was still talking. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Because yeah, she so. was the she was the like the fancy New Orleans aristocrat, yeah. and I remember. Yeah, we she was like that. I think she was in Hotel too. She, she was in like Hotel. She was like clerk. Yeah, she's like a yeah. She was yeah. the clerk and the mom of that drug addict vampire yeah. guy who was also like a model or something. No, no, not the model, the, just the vampire drug addict. Did right. you watch any of this, Mickey? As someone who does not watch television regularly, <laughs> this entire Dude. conversation has been a wild ride. This the show only, is right up your alley. The only two words. Honestly, I think he would like it. You would love this yeah. show. Wow. that last probably three-minute span that I understood was Stevie Nicks. <laughs> Well, Stevie Nicks is the most important part. Okay. Yeah. This is the history of Stevie I might have Stevie to watch Nicks. that show if, if it's just about Stevie Nicks. Just one season of it. She's in it. So we have the ether, um, and, you know, the ether frolics. We, we discovered long before the actual demonstration of surgical efficacy that these were useful in initiating an altered state of mind and presumably pain relief. All the way back to a fella named Humphrey Davy, who was, if I remember right, a British scientist at an institute who synthesized nitrogen oxide and was the person who coined the term laughing gas and basically he would get together with his buddies and they would just kind of do balloons all night and that that was one of their favorite things to do I guess I would say he, he seemed to enjoy it and he promoted its use and generally turned it into a semi-fashionable thing to do for the gentlemen about town. From what I understand, it wasn't particularly controversial. With that said, that's most of the the general ether stuff out of the way. So talking about the the real sciencey bits of it, mechanism of action and, and general chemical bits, the first thing to note about ether is that it is extremely, super, highly, really flammable. Mm. It is also heavier than air, which means that if you're not paying attention and you're, say, you know, spraying starting fluid in your bedroom for some reason, it all pulls around your feet and then you light a cigarette and it just engulfs you in a ball of flame. The flash point of ether without a spark is like under 200 degrees. So just it being around like a stove, even with no spark or flame, it will just explode. Um, so that's pretty dangerous. I feel like you, it, we could you like could, you could generate friction like with like two sticks and maybe just like spark on fire. Yeah. That might be possible, but and that's part of the reason why you can't really use it with modern surgery. Because God help you if you have an ether inhaler going and you try to cauterize something, you're gonna die. It's gonna be bad. <laughs> so in that sense, ether is very unsafe in that it will totally blow you up. There are a number of documented incidences of this in Poland in the 1930s. 
In between the world wars in Poland, in certain regions, ether drinking became a vaunted pastime amongst the blue-collar mine workers and other professions of Poland, because you can drink it. It lasts way longer, but there's also a risk of intestinal rupture because the ether pretty much vaporizes as soon as it gets in your intestines and expands, so that is a problem. God. Um, and these, these peasants, it has an effect somewhat similar to alcohol because when it's metabolized, one of the molecules is ethyl alcohol. Mm -hmm. But the actual anesthetic effect is related to the diethyl ether itself. But alcohol happens to be a metabolite, so there is some residual regular drunkenness. So these guys, you know, they would go drinking some ether and then try to smoke a cigarette and you would just go up and fire the flames. Most of the ether was smuggled in from Germany, like the Poles weren't even producing it, but the Germans were just smart enough not to drink a bunch of it and then smoke. Um, I feel like that's a high bar, but mm, no, it's not. Good job, Poland. So we had that period of time where ether was important in history. And then also other things of note, it has a very wide therapeutic index, as I may have mentioned earlier. It's actually extremely safe as far as how it acts on the body. And it also preserves the baroreceptor reflex. So it's very unlikely that you're going to get a sudden drop in blood pressure on ether like you can on certain other anesthetics. So in that sense, it, it's pretty safe. It's also worth noting that there's a possibility that it may have NMDA antagonist properties, but we don't really know. I read some studies that suggested that it might be a positive allosteric modulator of GABA-A receptors, which is okay. also just kind of a maybe that hasn't really been verified. I guess because there isn't really a lot of incentive to study ether anymore because yeah. nobody really uses it in, in that sense. So we've got that as far as the extra bits and bobs of ether other than just its surgical utility. What's the asphyxiation risk? Because you did mention that that was heavier than air. The asphyxiation risk, from what I understand, it's distributed into the bloodstream very quickly. So there's not a huge issue with it building up in the lungs. And the risk of sudden death from it was pretty low, especially, now I, I forgot to mention this actually, when the anesthetic inhaler was used, there were a variety of kind of crackpot looking devices. If you want to look them up, they're, they're pretty cool that were designed to kind of measure out inhalational anesthetics. I think for ether, these came kind of later, but there was one for chloroform that I'll get into in a moment. But they kind of helped because originally it was just a rag. Like it was just literally, hey, you never, you never smelled a rag like this before. <laughs> and then you were in surgery. That's pretty much ether for the most part. Now, comparing it to its also sort of archaic anesthetic counterpart chloroform, because I've already kind of talked about inhalational anesthetics in general, so I'm going to start off with kind of how they differ. And now, a word from our sponsor. Chloroform is way less flammable than ether. Chloroform is almost not flammable at all. So in that sense, it is substantially easier to handle. It also has a shorter induction period than chloroform. It is generally more potent. So you didn't have the same risk of like laryngospasm that you had when you were giving people these really long ether inductions before they actually went under. So you could kind of get to the surgery a great deal quicker. The other things that are different about it is it is not nearly as safe in the sense of ingestion. Way safer as far as flammability, but ingestion, it could kill you just at a moment's notice without really any warning. This was referred to as sudden sniffer's death. And 
I do not think that the pathology of this has ever been 100% worked out. Sudden sniffer's death was discovered when a, a small girl went under the knife because she had like an infected toenail that needed to be removed and they started giving her the chloroform inhaler and she just suddenly died from a pretty much complete loss of blood pressure. Like her heart just stopped. Mm, wow. In addition to that, unlike ether, which ether does have some hepatotoxicity because it metabolizes into acetaldehyde and ethanol. So if you really took it too far on the ether, you could damage your liver. But chloroform's primary metabolite is phosgene. Who, who has heard of phosgene? Wait, isn't that like a... a Toxic That's mustard gas. gas. Yeah. yeah, it's very similar to mustard gas, and it is designed to kill you. And the Germans were, were pretty fond of it in the First World War. So Shane did a whole episode on it, I thought. I, I don't uh, think it was that was similar. Mustard gas is, is really uh, similar. Yeah. There's like a family of gases. Uh, what do they technically call them? Nitrogen mustards or something? I think so, like, nitrogen mustards. It just sounds like a flavor of mustard. Yeah. Dijon nitrogen mm. mustard. <laughs> <laughs> nitrogenated mustard. You could probably get that. You can get you, nitrogenated beers. And coffee. Nitro yeah. coffee is the bomb. That's, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, I've handmade it a couple times. You just need one of those fancy whipped cream dispensers. Oh, yeah. And oddly enough, some nitrous oxide that's very on topic. And you put your cold brew in there, and you shake the nitrous into it, and you turn the dispenser upside down and spray it into the cup, and it foams it up really nice. Cool. Huh. I hope it works better than those, like, soda stream things. Oh, it, it definitely does. Nitrous is an infinitely better propellant glass. And it is also back... Oh, I forgot to say nitrous oxide is bacteriostatic. Mm, okay. As a, as a side I didn't line. know that. Yeah, it doesn't kill anything, but it can stop bacteria from growing. So back to chloroform and its differences with its rather closely related cousin. Like I said, sudden sniffer's death, phosgene that will 100% wreck your organs over time, less flammability on the upside and shorter induction, the other upside. But other than that, it, it's kind of hard to handle. So the, the first time that chloroform became really accepted, now it had been used before this, was when a surgeon slash midwife slash just kind of whatever he felt like doing named Snow. I think it was Edward Snow because I have a terrible habit of only writing down people's last names. Uh, <laughs> who is a surgeon, a, a pretty well-known surgeon in England. Are you sure you're not thinking of Edward Snowden? I'm not thinking of Edward. <laughs> I, I feel like it, it's Snow. It, it's Snow. So it might actually I, I think, be Edward Snow. I'm going to... I'm pretty sure Are you sure you're not Snow. thinking of Jack Frost? Yeah, Jack Frost. Jack Sparrow. <laughs> That's who I was thinking of. The first anesthesiologist. Um, so Edward Snow inducted Queen Victoria the first, I do believe, or the, oh. the Queen Victoria before, let's see, so yeah, the Victorian era, the Queen Victoria kind of known for that period with chloroform during childbirth. This was somewhat controversial because painful childbirth was predominantly viewed as a religious experience, um, as just per the Bible saying that painful childbirth was the curse given to women by God after being kicked out of the Garden of Eden. So that was a little bit controversial at the time, but once the queen started doing it, everybody started doing it because it was fashionable all of a sudden, they started using it a lot more prevalently. She was quoted as saying something to the effect of, when Dr. Snow gave that blessed chloroform, and on and on. You can kind of imagine how the rest of that account goes. 
Um, so that, that was what kind of brought it into common province. Snow also invented the first chloroform inhaler, which unfortunately, since this is a podcast, I cannot show you, but imagine a metal tube with kind of a woven metal, uh, I guess I should say a, yeah, it's a solid tube connected to another tube. It's like woven metal that's flexible with a velvet mouthpiece on the end for maximum luxury. Um, <laughs> the outer rigid tube is filled with cold water. And then there's like a chloroform rag somewhere in there. There was another one that was designed to meter doses that looked like a surgical mask attached to like a valve, which was attached to, you know, those punching bag balloons. It yeah. was like that, but it was made of yeah, like, like India a, rubber. Like a ball valve. Yeah. Like one of those, like that you punch, that you like what hang was on. the obsession with chloroform rags? Like that first one that you mentioned just didn't seem like it needed a rag at all. <laughs> Does that I, have to be in there? I mean, I, it's just cause you need something that they use sponges to, or maybe they just, I couldn't find a really good description of exactly how to use one Why of these can't you just like pour it in a tube? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I guess he, that helps control the vape. I, I, mean, I don't know. But the, it just like seems like that's in pop culture now. No matter what, if you're using chloroform, if you just stick like any TV or movie show, if you just like... You know, if you see someone, you know, getting knocked out with a rag, you just immediately assume it's chloroform. Yeah. Which I recall mentioning I was going to talk about earlier. That that doesn't really happen, as we talked about previously. Chloroform induction is not as long as ether, but it can still take up to seven minutes at consistent dosing. So unless you are prepared, prepared to hold someone in a full Nelson with a rag over their face for seven minutes... <laughs> It's not going to be a very you know effective what? kidnapping you, technique. You would have to do a half Nelson, a full okay, Nelson. Okay, half Where, Nelson. You're gonna, what are you going to do with the rag? <laughs> you're going to have to 619 them onto the rag. Um, tombstone pile driver. I, I don't remember how what these are called. But anyway, <laughs> RKO. if that wasn't, yeah, RKO them into the rag. It stands for rag knockout. Nice. Yeah, well, saved. So yeah, that that is not a, a proper depiction of chloroform anesthesia. Could you do that with diethyl ether though? Not really. Diethyl ether has an even longer induction period. Uh, could you do that with anything? I do not think anything would be like immediate knocking you out. I mean, if anything was going to be that potent, it would probably be like a modern kind of fluorinated anesthetic. But mm -hmm. I'll be honest, I didn't do a ton of research on those to keep the focus on ether and chloroform. But from what I understand, they typically induce sooner, like halothane and isoflurane and sevaflurane. What about whatever they give you now that puts you out in less than 10 seconds? Because they always say count backwards from 10 and then you're out. You're out before one. Is that... I feel like that's one of the fluoranes because I don't think nitrous goes that quick. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know what they give in, in modern surgeries. I don't know either, but when they had to put me under, it's obviously not like super strong. Like you're right on the borderline of consciousness because they told me a couple times where it's like, yeah, you were trying to get out of the bed and like fight people. Oh, it depends on the type of procedure that they're doing. If they're doing a really invasive procedure, they'll give you a combination of stuff. They'll give you um, something to knock you out, but also a paralytic too. And then you'll usually be intubated because when I had hernia surgery, I had to be like knocked out, paralyzed and, and intubated because it's invasive. Oh yeah. When I had my wisdom teeth removed, they gave me three injections through a catheter, one of which was diazepam, the other of which was fentanyl, and the last of which was propofol. Dang, that is a, that's you? a party. No, it, it was it was awesome that's for the like Jackson the ten three. Yeah. For like the for like the fifteen seconds was I was conscious, it was the, the greatest thing I'd ever experienced. <laughs> um, and then I realized that I was asleep and I woke up in my mom's car with a milkshake. Nice. Um, Dude, that's a great way to wake it was, up. It Wait, was pretty You're not tight. supposed to have milkshake after the I did. You can't tell me what to do. 
You're not supposed, to have, you're not supposed, supposed to have a straw because that's going to give you a dry socket. I use a spoon. Oh, that's fine. Yeah, I use a spoon and I use a straw. Never mind. I apologize. I was going to say, I yeah. think if anything would do it, just like an immediate, like, I mean, I guess they give IV propofol and I guess you couldn't inhale propofol. Maybe, I don't know, intramuscularly, if you just like quickly gave someone an injection of propofol, maybe. I mean, I mean, by I thought that we were logic, talking only if inhaled. we're only talking about like quick anesthetics, just a like right on the button hit that'll do it that's the easiest way to knock yeah. someone out I mean, that's that's a fair point i think that has been used as an anesthetic before like in medieval times they would actually just knock people unconscious to operate on them mm-hmm. especially um, if they were like non-compliant yeah the problem with that is i think you could a lot of times actually feel it you just weren't oh, capable yeah. of doing anything about it mm-hmm. um but let's see where was i so we talked about the phosgene and we talked about dr snow um, it's also worth mentioning that after chloroform was discovered, we briefly transitioned to chloroform as an anesthetic from ether. And then when a bunch of people started dying, everybody said, all right, let's go back to ether for a while. So ether had its day again after chloroform proved to be sort of temperamental, right. we'll say. And as I was talking about earlier, with chloroform, we're also not 100% sure how it works. I have seen... Theories from it's so lipophilic and you inhale it and it actually messes with the, the membranes of nerve cells like gets in the membranes and distorts them, which that, that sounds a little outlandish, but if you don't know, you don't know. To that it messes with the efflux of potassium ions in the hmm. central nervous system to NMDA antagonist activity. Maybe a cocktail of all these things, but it's not totally known how chloroform exerts its anesthetic effects. I also had a note there that said, quote, can't really rob people with it. Um, And I already said that, so I'm not going to go over it again. But that is essentially my brief exploration into the two perhaps most popular and well-known inhalational anesthetics. And now, of course, in the modern age, we still use inhalational anesthesia, but we typically utilize the fluorine, sevaflurane, isoflurane, halothane, which I think halothane was discovered in 1951 hmm. when we first started getting around to that. And chloroform is, of course, like ether, still used in the laboratory. It's a pretty good laboratory solvent. It's got decent polar and nonpolar characteristics. And best part is that, say, society collapses, right? And you're looking for a career in surgery now that there's no degrees around to stop you from doing it. What you can do is you take you some... In this part, Ivan goes on to describe in detail the full process of the manufacturing of chloroform with ingredients included. We've decided to remove this part for obvious reasons. And now, back to the show. So if you ever do need to perform amateur surgery on someone, then that is a possibility. You know an alarming amount about yeah, the production of chloroform. Yeah, that was a freaky amount of step-by-step ways to make chloroform. Well, I mean, I did just do research for an entire, like, 20-minute talk on chloroform. Like, I'm, of course I found... It's called... Redacted. Yeah, of course. I mean, this is not, like, hard org chem, uh, but it's actually way easier to make diethyl ether than that. Because yeah, don't you just boil, like... Redacted. Then redact it yep. together and then collect it? That just sounds like a good way to explode, though. What is happening right now? I don't now? know, man. <laughs> That's Farmanized, an organic chemistry podcast. We're breaking bad. Sponsored by the Anarchist Cookbook. You know all those, (laughs) like, fake doctor stories that you hear, like, someone has been practicing, you know, as a doctor for, like, 20 years. It's going to be Ivan. It's just Ivan. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> Honestly, though, if like if I needed a fake doctor that wasn't an actual doctor, I think I might go to Ivan first. I mean, I got a shed. We could probably hook it up. <laughs> if, if the CIA needs a fake doctor to go undercover, Ivan is the guy. There we go. Because he knows enough about doctoring. The the Cold War is starting again. God, I hope not. I'm gonna. We're gonna go spying. That's what we're gonna do. I don't want to have to throw hands with some woo-mills. <laughs> so, d- does anybody have any any remarks or, or questions or I something that I neglected to bring remarks up? Remarks and concerns. Okay. But other than that, I don't, I don't think so. Okay. I well, think that was pretty informative. Be concerned. Tell me your concerns. <laughs> oh, I have a lot. Okay. Are they just general concerns? <laughs> oh, all. Concerns? Yeah, all concerns. All right. Just just towards well, the sheer amount, the vast amount of things that you both know. That's <laughs> just like... Hey, I can't think of anything I regret knowing. And I mean, somebody's going to need to do surgery when the world turns into a Mad Max desert wasteland. So give it all your contact information for all the listeners, just in case of in case of anarchy. (laughs) Call Ivan. Send your address to Let's Farmanize. You'll receive a business card. I accept a button. Slim Jims and five five six ammunition. (laughs) (laughs) Have you seen that that meme? It's a it's a picture of like an anime girl hiding under a desk. And then there's yeah, like a, a Terminator, Terminator with the gun, and the Terminator says, "Me, peanut butter, psychedelics, five five six armor penetrated rounds." And the little girl says, "Neighbors, food, supplies, water." It's just <laughs> <laughs> peanut butter, psychedelics, five hundred rounds of five five six. Let's harmonize meme review. A plus I mean, on that one. I'm sure there's lots of pharmacy need, memes. Yeah. I've seen you guys post some pharmacy memes. Like, yeah, man. We need to have a meme review. Pretty soon, especially with all the uh, drama, the meme drama, yeah. the meme thieves. high high drama happening. I, I hope that that was those workable material. That Absolutely, one, that one was a little more off the cuff. Than yeah, well, thank you for bringing that to us. That was really entertaining and informative. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the show for sure. I, I appreciate being allowed to come because it's it's pretty fun. I mean. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. Special thanks to Kelly Kerr and Granny for providing the voices of our cavemen, and thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.